2: Welcome, this is another Books of the Year podcast from your friends at Books of the Year. That was a stupid thing to say, but anyway, Matt's there somewhere in his... uh, Yes, I am. ...with the worst Wi-Fi in the world, because very few things change. Correct. Even though we've got to the end of a very tricksy period, well, we haven't got to the end of it because the pandemic is continuing in various forms, he still hasn't got a decent Wi-Fi. But anyway... um, Correct. Are you there? Is everything poised and ready?
1: Yeah, it is as poised as it's ever going to be. I'm looking forward to the Wi Fi failing within about 20 minutes. Okay. So let's crack okay. on. Right. Uh,
2: to, uh, and today we're talking to Jonathan Friedland about the escape artist. Um, it says on the front, an immediate classic. This is according to Anthony Beaver. Uh, and uh, to like to say, Jonathan Friedland joins us from his uh, luxurious. Um looks like, a, a, I think you're in your kitchen, I think, and we're looking, I can just see your garden. <laughs> Would that be right?
3: You are broadly right, yeah. I'm in a sort of corner, which I've positioned in such a way that there's, I'm surrounded by cushions and various blankets to keep the acoustic studio-like. But yes, you can get a little glimpse there. It's
2: it's where uh, so much radio has come from people's houses and homes over the last couple yeah. of years. We've all sort of got used to Uh, the fact that uh, this is a way of doing it um, in the future. It's always good to speak to you, Jonathan. We're speaking to you um, as Jonathan Friedland and not as Sam Bourne. Um, Yeah. Your book is The Escape Artist. Matt is going to describe the cover before we get any further. Matt, describe this book by its cover.
1: So it's an overwhelmingly dark um, cover other than the title, which is in big, bold, yellow letters, The Escape Artist. But pro three quarters of the front of the book is is just black with right at the bottom you have a ribbon picture of um the train track uh leading up to Auschwitz which many people will be um familiar with but then as i say the escape artist uh in in gold um painted on the, on the on almost on on wood uh in the middle of the page the man who broke out of Auschwitz to warn the world jonathan friedland jonathan tell us who who was the escape artist
3: this is uh, the story of rudolf Werber, his name was i always say verber just because it sounds so weird to keep pronouncing it the absolutely accurate way but uh, he was one of the very tiny group of jews who escaped from auschwitz he did it when he was 19 years old He did it alongside a fellow prisoner, also like him from Slovakia, a man called Fred Wetzler. They escaped in April 1944. They were, in fact, the first Jews to break out, physically break out of the camp and make their way to freedom. No one had ever pulled off that feat before. And as the book says on, you know, the subtitle on the cover of the book, um, as described by Matt, says he did it. For a reason. He did it to warn the world. They did it to warn the world, and particularly actually to warn their fellow Jews of what fate awaited them at Auschwitz, because at that point, uh, hardly anybody knew. And even the word Auschwitz, which now is so familiar and part of the global language, part of the global imagination, even that word was not known. Uh, when they did it so it's about uh, somebody who pulled off one of the great escape I've read quite a few of these wartime escapes you know you probably like me grew up with the great escape movie with Steve McQueen and escape from cold on tv to my mind having read quite a few of them I think this is the most extraordinary escape partly because the security on, on and the way a Jew was guarded in Auschwitz was tighter and more severe than for anybody else but also, they for this driving purpose that Wetzler and Werber had uh, makes it of such great import. The reason they did it uh, and the, and and their warning to the world.
2: How did you how did you come across this story, uh, Jonathan? And uh, and maybe you could also hint, or maybe you could tell us at the same time as to why you think
3: we haven't known about this story before. Well, I came across it such a long time ago when. I mean, Verbal was nineteen when he escaped, and I was nineteen when I first heard his story. Um, because I went to see the nine and a half hour long, epic documentary made by Claude Landsman called Shoah, which came out in nineteen eighty five-eighty-six. I saw it in in a London cinema in nineteen eighty-six. It was in two parts. You would go on successive days. And it's a long, painful, difficult, but extraordinary film. Um you know, you might talk about it one day on your other show. I mean, it's a, it's just an extraordinary piece of cinema. Uh, but there's one person who, to me, as a 19 year old at the time, kind of exploded off the screen. It's, it's made. There's no archive in the film. It's just made up of interviews. There's a succession of interviewees who, to me then, age 19, looked like very old men. When I watch it now, I realise they weren't so old actually, but they looked like old, kind of broken, defeated men and women. And then. Somebody pops up on the screen who kind of explodes off the screen because he looks way younger than the rest. He's tanned, he's handsome, he's wearing this kind of tan leather coat. He looks like Al Pacino in Scarface or something. And it's, um, He's in Manhattan. The others are interviewed in Polish, in Poland, or in Germany, or in Czechoslovakia. He's there in you know New York City, and he's got this really uh, amazing screen presence and charisma. And the film mentions, almost in passing, actually, it's not the main purpose of the film, that this Jewish man escaped from Auschwitz. And I, even at 19, knew enough about Auschwitz and the Holocaust to know that Jews didn't really escape from Auschwitz. That was unbelievable that somebody had done that. The film talks about then other things. Um, it gets into the fact that Werber had been in Auschwitz for two years, nearly, very nearly two years, which is itself extraordinary and exceptional and um, exceptional. Most Jews arrived at Auschwitz, their life expectancy was measured in hours. Um, if they were in the concentration camp as opposed to death camp, if they were in the concentration camp part of Auschwitz, used as slaves, they were, their life would be in weeks and months. For somebody to have been there two years made him exceptional. And that's, in fact, why Landsman wanted to talk to him because he had this extraordinary 360-degree panoramic view of, of the world of Auschwitz because he'd been there so long and worked in almost every part of it. Um, so that's what he talks about. That lodged in my mind... Um, even as a 19-year-old, I thought, well, that I want to know more about that person and how he did that. And then the, your other question, why is it that he wasn't well known, it, is fascinating, because in the 35 years that passed between me seeing that film and now... You know, he's hardly mentioned. I mean, he hardly appeared. He wasn't really interviewed anywhere else. He didn't give great speeches that were to huge audiences. You know, he didn't win the Nobel Peace Prize like Elie Wiesel. He wasn't uh, a kind of a you know, famous international no- writer like Primo Levy. Uh, he was known to a few specialist historians. He's He's there in the footnotes. You know, he's mentioned every now and again. But my best guess uh, as to which we may come on to talk about, as to why he was not well known, is his story. The story I hope you know, you and I might talk about now, we, or, is that um, it was uncomfortable. It, it was inconvenient, and he, he 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 ended up pointing the finger, an accusing finger, in a few difficult and awkward directions, and. I think that's that. Plus, his personal manner—he was a very angry man, and he was—he, you know, he wouldn't do what I think we often expect of Holocaust survivors, which is to be this soothing, healing, uplifting presence who who bestow on us kind of wisdom that they've gained through suffering. Uh, you know, you listen to media interviews with the dwindling number of Holocaust survivors now, and they are, they're treated, with, as rightly, with great reverence, but almost as if they're the kind of Dalai Lama or something, that they're going to give some sort of almost self-help wisdom, improving wisdom. Verber wouldn't do that. And I found even in the archive a letter from Verber to a BBC TV producer where he says, I should warn you, I will not be the cliched Holocaust survivor. You know, he was aware himself. He was an angry uh you know orn difficult scratchy guy and he would not give you the comfortable narrative that people want. We we may get into why his account was uncomfortable.
1: I think yeah, we definitely want to get into um, him delivering a message to the world and the world perhaps not wanting to listen. I have to I have to begin by saying this, Jonathan, this is an astonishing piece of work um there's something i want to share with you i was listening to a podcast uh about books uh, a couple of weeks ago which is obviously uh vastly inferior to this one but still uh, a podcast about books and the author was asked at the end of it um she was asked you know are there any books that you're reading at the moment any that you'd recommend and verbatim this is what she said she said well um i i'm gonna read um, the escape artist like everyone else Ugh. And it was. Uh, there are two things to say there. One is the like everyone else, uh, which is always nice to hear as an author. But the other is she didn't need to explain what the escape artist was. She didn't say, uh, "I'm going to be reading Jonathan Friedland's book about the guy who who escaped from Auschwitz and told the world the escape artist." She just said the escape artist, and it struck me hearing that. And I was in the middle of reading your book when when I when I heard that interview. And it struck me straight away. This feels like a career-defining book that you've written here. Now, I've well, I've, I've read plenty of your your other books, and we've had, we've been lucky enough to have you on the podcast um, as Sam Bourne um, for for the thrillers that you've done, but. I absolutely have been bowled over by this piece of work, and I—I I, I suppose this is like one of my questions to when I when we had Ian ranking on. Ian, how do you write books so well? You're so great. <laughs> so my question to you, Jonathan, is: does, does this feel like a career-defining work to you?
3: Well, Matt, that's incredibly generous. I'm really, you know, a bit blown away myself by you saying all that, and um, that I'm re- you know, me, genuinely that means a lot to fit me to hear that because. You know, this was harder than anything else I've had to write. Not for the obvious reason. I think some people think it must have been so hard because it was about the Holocaust. Um, What was so hard about it for me was, and it is related to the fact that it was the Holocaust, but first of all, because it was non-fiction rather than fiction, I found that I was almost midway through every sentence stopping, checking, checking, double checking then going back and you know you you as people who write or are involved in a business like this will know that a big important thing about what we all do is sometimes to get a flow and get momentum and to and to not stop and start all the time and with Sam Bourne book sometimes I would really get on a roll, roll where it was just flowing and I was in a, almost like in a trance doing it This was not like that. Here, every four or five words, I would have to say, hang on a minute. Did he, if he, you know, this account says he was 200 yards from that place, but I've got one over here that says 180 yards. Let me now get the map out. And, oh, I see why, because that that barrack moved in 1943. You know, I was doing this sort of thing, and therefore it was very, uh, you know, it felt sort of juddering at the time or, or stop it, you know, faltering. Uh, and I had genuine worries about with you know is this going to work because it it didn't feel like anything I'd done before partly why I was doing that was I felt this huge obligation to be as scrupulously accurate as I could be and to make because it's the holocaust and there are people who deny the holocaust and I didn't want anybody going to be able to, to be able to say well hang on that doesn't match up and therefore we can't rely on the whole thing you know and so I, I was sort of obsessively meticulous. There will be mistakes in there because human beings make mistakes. So I say that now, I'm not claiming that, you know, every, this is somehow flawless, but it, certainly, you know, nothing have, uh, of any import has been pointed out so far. And my hope is that I've I've um, got it right, but that meant it felt very, very different. But, but you know, where you say career-defining, I mean, it has done well and it's been in the bestsellers as it is now as we're speaking, and that is hugely gratifying. But mainly I think it was this feeling that this was a story that was really like no other. I almost myself couldn't believe it as I was going through the material, how how amazing this story was, and, and in a way that people hadn't really put it, all the pieces together and told it before, um, you know, Verbe himself did write a memoir in 1963. And that tell, up, that takes you more or less up to the escape, a little bit of afterwards, but not really uh, much. Uh, and obviously, there was so much he didn't know, which is funny to say that about someone writing their own life story. But there have been lots of archives opened and papers. So he could only know about it from his own point of view. I was able to look at all the kind of archives and stuff around the world and documents that have come out, come to light since. And I was able to interview, you know, he was married twice and I was lucky enough to interview both women. Um, his, his widow, his second wife is still alive and in the United States and she was Robin Verber was a wonderful help and filled in tons of things that he himself had not put in his autobiography written, you know, nearly 60 years ago. And then I, you know, through amazing luck, also got to talk to his first wife, who had been his childhood sweetheart and who knew him before Auschwitz. And she, you know, I I can say more about that too. But between them and all the documents and everything else, the story got just fuller and fuller and bigger and bigger. And yes, in a way, there were moments where I thought, look, this is the most important thing I've ever written. At the
2: heart of the, the, the book, it, so you, you start the book with, with, with the escape. So it's April 1944. Can you tell us, Jonathan, once that escape has been successful, I found myself wanting to know... So he escapes to Slovakia. What What is happening in Slovakia? Is it a Nazi satellite state? Because this is where he has gone to tell his story. And obviously how his story is... Uh, and he writes this report and how the lessons that are learned and how long it takes for anyone to do anything at all um, is very important to you telling the story. But what, who's in charge of Slovakia and who are the people who he is explaining what is happening in Auschwitz to?
3: This is, by the way, is why people love coming on this podcast because there are never any spoilers, and that's brilliant because you ha- you've, you've <laughs> haven't you've asked me, as some people have, to try and spoil the story of this game, which... Um, which you know I really do like holding back for because it is I think you know pretty extraordinary, and as you say they then you know even once out of Auschwitz they, it's not over for them because they have to cross Nazi occupied Poland which they takes them uh, you know crossing marshlands and forests and mountains and um, rivers with as as Verba later said no map no compass no friends they have no contacts in the outer world there's no resistance to help them because they're Jews uh, and they have to travel at night not at day you know it's it's how they do it is is amazing but they do they make it back to Slovakia their home country um and they, their determination then is to make contact with the remnant Jewish community so to answer your question exactly as you say it was a nazi satellite state a fascist run state an ally of uh, Adolf Hitler's and Nazi Germany. It had not yet been occupied. It would be later on in 1944, the the Germans would actually then enter and occupy it with boots on the ground. At that stage, they don't need to because the regime is so pro-Nazi to the point where it was kind of, um, you know, more royal than the king. You know, it was more eager to persecute and, uh, and pursue Jews than even Nazi Germany itself. The first deportations Uh, from anywhere to Auschwitz were were from Slovakia. Um, It was run by, incredibly, a fascist leader who is also a Catholic priest, Father Josef Tiso, or Tiso. Um, And that regime had passed Nuremberg-style laws, meaning discriminatory laws against Jews, while Rudolf Erbel was, you know, 14, 15, 16, um he, you know, was a very, very bright young boy who had gotten to one of the very best high schools in Bratislava uh, and turned up for school one day in September uh, 1938 and was told, you're no longer, you no longer have a place at this school, no Jews are allowed anymore. And, you know, the rules, I chart how the rules and new regulations have passed almost week by week, day by day, Jews weren't allowed to own radios, they weren't allowed to own sports equipment, they couldn't travel beyond a certain number of miles without a permit, and that number of miles would get smaller. You know, their lives were more and more restricted until essentially there was a policy of officially sanctioned looting, where uh, non Slovak non-Jews could more or less you know, uh, in these various paramilitary groups could arrive at a Jewish home and say, "Right, we're having that." You know, and they would—they would just walk in and take. In one case, a grand piano; they just walked out with it. Um, but it culminates in in deportation and in the early spring of uh, of nineteen forty two, when Rudy's just seventeen, uh, Jews are put loaded onto trains. The order comes to car- to to go, and Rudy in. in you know, incidentally, refuses to do that. And that's why I called the book, partly, The Escape Artist, is he's a serial escapologist. He keeps on escaping, both before and after Auschwitz. Um, so he tries to escape the deportation, you know. Uh, but, what's, uh, but eventually he doesn't, obviously, and arrives in Auschwitz on the last day of June in 1942. The, the interesting thing, again, something he did not know about and could not have known about is there was a pause in the deportations. Um, and that is why there was still a remnant Jewish community left. Tiny community, we're talking about the whole Slovak jury, was about 89,000 people. And most of them, um, about you know, 60-odd thousand, were deported in 1942. That left 20-odd thousand who were still there. They thought the deportations had ended the slovak jewish leadership thought that they had successfully bribed the officials to to halt the deportations little did they know it was merely a pause for the for the slovak and the nazi's own reasons which the book gets into but it was only a pause it's in the period of that pause that rudy and fred escape and so there are there are still some jews left in slovakia who are clinging on huge discrimination Uh, Their lives absolutely circumscribed, but they are alive. And so they make contact with the Slovak Jewish leadership, such as it was, and they find their way to a basement of what had been a Jewish old age home in uh, the small Slovak town of Žilina, And there, hiding in a basement, Rudy and Fred, they pour out the the eyewitness testimony that they have been, again, another incredible thing, methodically accumulating and memorising. Rudy particularly had the most extraordinary memory. And so they sort of, you know, verbally download everything they have been, this data they've been collecting in their head. And somebody from the Jewish community there, a lawyer, an engineer and and backed by a lawyer, uh, they sit down and methodically write it all down. And it becomes this 32-page, single-spaced, Report, which at that point is the most detailed account of Auschwitz Birkenau that had ever been written anywhere in the world, because people only had fragments of of rumor and uh, and bits of uh, testimony. Suddenly, they have a full account, um, and that report would then embark on a kind of escape of its own, which the book charts. Uh, yes. But yeah, it's, but, but, Slovakia was in that strange place. Sorry, Jonathan,
2: but nothing happens. F- for quite a long time. So why why is then... why? Well, maybe you could explain as... Who, you've told us who it is that they're downloaded, downloading this information
3: to. Why does it take such a long time for anything to happen as a result of this report? Yeah. I mean, to, I, I should say from the something really big does happen as a result of this report. And again, it is why I think Rudolf Werber deserves to be ranked alongside you know, Primo Levi, Oscar Schindler, Anne Frank, you know, the names that define our understanding of, of the Holocaust, because something really big does happen, and we'll come to that. But, the, but he believed um, that the moment he got the word out, the, the, you know, everything would change, and that the, uh, the killing in Auschwitz, which by, the, by that period, the spring of 1944, would get to a rate of twelve to 15,000 Jews are murdered there every single day he believed that um the the proof that the world did not know about it he thought was the fact that it was happening um because it was it was a matter it was obvious to him that if the world knew they would not be allowing this thing to happen so he um assumed that he would just say the words the report would get typed up and it would stop the next day or the day after And it proved very naive. The report had to go on its own journey, which it did in secret. And it was passed hand to hand, person to person, you know, across borders of occupied Europe. I chart there. I think my book is the first time the journey of the report has ever been charted uh, and all put together uh, in one place. Um, But it does make its way to the desk of Winston Churchill in London, to the desk of Franklin Roosevelt in Washington and the Pope in Rome. Uh, They all get it. And uh, by then attached to it is a plea from Jewish leaders even outside Slovakia, but also inside, saying, um, you have to bomb the railway tracks to Auschwitz because um you know the Auschwitz is essentially a killing factory, a death factory, which is producing, you know, ash human ash and smoke at a rate of fifteen thousand human beings a day. Um Therefore, if this is a factory, take out the conveyor belt, you know, bomb the railway tracks. And, you know, to his credit, Churchill says to his Foreign Secretary, Anthony Eden, raise this with the Air Force, get anything out of the Air Force you can, invoke me if necessary. The head of the Air Ministry Air Force says... This is not practical. We can't do it because we bomb during the night, and the Americans. This would require bombing during the day. Talk to the Americans. You know, it goes through all the bureaucracy of of the of Washington. This department, that department. It takes a week to be, you know, cabled to this desk rather than that desk. Each day, you know, thousands are dying, but they are taking their time, and they have meetings and they talk about it. And in the end, you know, Roosevelt himself says he doesn't want to have any part of it because that he feels if in the process of bombing Jews get killed uh, then somehow the Americans would be complicit in effect in the in the Holocaust not that anyone's calling it that at that point uh, so it's partly practical it's partly prejudice there were bureaucrats who read this report in London and said I think we've heard enough of these wailing Jews or you know we've got to allow for a certain degree of Jewish exaggeration etc so nothing happens from, in terms of the, that military ask. As it happens, Werber and Wetzel themselves, Werber in particular, that wasn't really the prime concern. Their prime goal was get this word out to Jews themselves because one of Rudolf Werber's jobs in Auschwitz was working literally on the railway platform, the ramp, known as the Alter Juden Ramp, the old Jew ramp, where Jewish that's what the Nazis called it, where the, where each train would arrive and his job was unloading those cattle trucks that were packed uh, with Jewish deportees from all points across the continent, Belgium, Holland, France, Germany, Austria you know, Slovakia, what we would now call the Czech Republic, etc. They were all, Greece, you know, they were all brought there. And he every day saw these people getting off, and he saw them getting off in relatively orderly fashion. And he understood, he had this great penetrating insight, even as a 17, 18-year-old, he realised that the core element of the Nazi method was deception. That it was because they, they had been lied to that they were... And because they believed that they were going to be resettled for new lives, not murdered, you know, that's why they were getting off in an relatively orderly fashion, and he realised that's what he had to break. He this, this this veil, this veil of ignorance, is what he had to tear down. That's why he wanted to write the report. There was one community that had not yet been dragged into the Nazi inferno, and that was the Jews of Hungary. And so he wanted his report to get to the Jews of Hungary, and it did. Within a day of him, the ink being dry, it is handed to the de facto leader of the Jews of Hungary. Werber's almost fantasy was that they would be shouting from the rooftops, telling the Jews, do not get on those trains. You are not being resettled for new lives in the East. You are being sent to your deaths. That's what he wanted, but it didn't happen. Uh, Reju Kastner the leader of de facto leader of Hungarian Jewry for a whole lot of reasons which I again get into in the book sat on that report he it stayed in a desk drawer he did not pass it on to the Jews of Hungary who needed that warning and that is one big reason why uh, Rudolf Weber in later life was so bitter and so angry.
1: That is the. Uh, I mean, there are so many parts of this book where you um, have to put it down because you're so astonished. It, it, it where where the hair is raising on the back of your on the back of your neck. But that sequence that you've just outlined now was was the point for me where my jaw was open, because Rudy had set off with three facts that he thought were unassailable. Three facts. One, people outside of Auschwitz don't know what's going on. Fact two. Once the Allies find out about what's going on here, they will act. And fact three, once the intended victims of what is happening in Auschwitz find out, they will refuse. And all three of that, as you've just outlined, all three of those um, facts turn, turned to dust in front of his eyes. I do want to ask you about the impact he did have, because he did, yes. because that report did have, perhaps not the massive impact that he was hoping for, that he was prepared to put his life on the line for, but it did have an impact. Just tell us what, what you know, yeah, because I mean, the, there was some success there.
3: Yes, he um, had written that report to warn the Jews of Hungary um, because he knew there was some... You know, more uh, far in excess of 600,000 Jews of Hungary who had not yet arrived. And that was partly accounted for the urgency of the escape. Um, as we say, it reached those sort of diplomatic capitals. There wasn't the immediate action, but it also, the report had its, uh, you know, had took many parts. And one of them, and I say this partly because I'm a journalist, but thank God it did reach a journalist. It reached a British journalist in neutral Switzerland where the press was freer of... Uh, regulation and censorship, it reached a British journalist by the name of Walter Garrett, who realised the significance of this report straight away and in, in To me, what is a, a kind of incredible moment, I still picture it. So determined was he to get the story out. He didn't just sort of wire it to his news desk in London. He goes round on his bike in Zurich in the dead of night, handing co- copies of the story he's written, posting them through the letterboxes of all the newspapers in Zurich. The story gets out in late June of 1944. Remember, by then, it's nearly two months since Fred and Rudy have done their escape. By then, incredibly, 437,000, as it were, extra Jews have been killed since the escape, the Jews of the Hungarian provinces. But it gets out and it gets into the Swiss newspapers and from there around the world. And straight away, and this shows you the example, the importance rather, of information being public. It Almost immediately, the Pope, who has known about this for some time, by the way, then now, now once it's public and he's sort of shamed into acting, writes to the de facto leader of Hungary, the regent of Hungary, Admiral Horty, and says, as the Holy Father, I am pleading with you to stop the deportation of these unfortunate people. He never says the word Jews. Roosevelt writes to Horty in Hungary as well and says got to warn you, if you're on the losing side of the war and you're involved in this deportation of Jews, you're going to be uh, held for war crimes. That double warning makes Horty, who has turned a blind eye to the deportation and murder of 437,000 Hungarians, now blows the whistle and says enough. And he halts the deportations that were just about to start from the capital, Budapest. And therefore, 200,000 Jews of Budapest who would have been deported and sent to the deaths in Auschwitz were not because of the report written by 19-year-old Rudolf Herber and Fred Wetzler. And that is why they have a, they, they are responsible for the saving of 200,000 lives, which is why, I mean, what a unbelievable figure, which is why I say they belong right up there among the towering figures Of the Holocaust, I mean, Oskar Schindler is a you know is properly remembered for those three thousand Jews on Schindler's list. Um, We're talking two hundred thousand people as a result of this report. Now Verbe himself did not beat his chest about this in later life and say, "Look at me, what a great hero," because he could not let go of the fact that there were four hundred thirty-seven thousand who did not get saved, and as far as he saw it, absolutely should have been, but two hundred thousand were.
2: Jonathan, I want to ask you a question about telling this story as, as the storyteller that you are. I interviewed Ron Howard uh, last week for his movie 13 Lives, which tells the story about the Thai boys who were rescued from the cave, having been there incredibly for, for two weeks. And he, the story is told... It's, this is a drama. It stars Viggo Mortensen and Colin Farrell and um, it's, it's full of Thai actors and so on. But it's told by someone, Ron Howard, who has also made very successful documentaries... And I wonder if you told, one of the reasons why this book is so powerful is that you are telling the story in the way that you do because, as well as being a Guardian journalist, you are a thriller writer. And so you are approaching telling this extraordinary story from a slightly different perspective to someone else who might have told this story.
3: Well that's um I like you know look obviously I embrace that comparison <laughs> uh, that's a really really you know uh, gratifying thought I think uh, it did help yeah I didn't perhaps realize how much until I've seen the way people have responded to the book um but I have written nine thrillers and there's something about I mean you do this yourself you you know there's something about the pacing of of a thriller story where it's all about withholding knowledge and you know you unspool the line bit by bit rather than just splurging it all out in one go and the, the this story i think it demanded to be told in that way because it is properly thrilling i mean i didn't have to manipulate or sort of spin the history to make it feel like a, a you know exci- an exciting story this is a 19 year old boy who escapes the or 19 year old man Uh, who together with his friend escapes the tightest possible net that you could ever escape and did it to warn the world. I mean, that is a a truly heroic and adventurous thing. But yes, I did draw on in a way the kind of... Training, I suppose, in some ways, but the sort of le- lessons I'd learned from writing fiction, and so it is paced that way, and it's done without embarrassment that way. And I think it, what I've been really pleased by is a whole lot of people who don't normally read f- nonfiction, and a whole lot of people who don't normally read, um, w- wouldn't go anywhere near something about the Holocaust because they think that would seem too forbidding and sort of depressing have instead said, look, I just couldn't stop. I couldn't put it down. It was I was turning the pages. I wanted to know what happened next. And I went into one bookshop uh, to sign a few copies. And they said, the manager there said, you know, when people come in here and say, um, what do you re- I like thrillers? What thriller do you recommend? The manager said to me, "I'm recommending The Escape Artist," and you know, I'm recommending a nonfiction book to people who say they want to read a thriller. I'm really pleased about that because I I, I think you know this story, the Holocaust, needs to be break out of just the kind of. The readership that reads history books, and the, also that can, you know, uh, and that can, I think, they have a sort of strong stomach to face a grim episode, and a bleak episode in human history. I want it to be read by other people, and so far, that does seem to be what's happening. And that is, you know, I, uh, I'm I'm really glad about that, and I'm partly glad about it, frankly, because Verbe himself did not get the recognition in his lifetime for what he had done. You know, I describe in the book that uh, when he died in 2006, um, there were, you know, they had a memorial service and there was around 40 people there, no more. Um, you know, he, he, he this he didn't have the, uh, as I say, recognition that I think he did deserve. And so when pe- people are reading this now and writing to me saying, what an absolutely extraordinary man, he or men, he and Vetzler were! what an incredible thing they did. You know, that feels to me as if a, a very small kind of wrong has been righted a bit in terms of uh, him getting his due.
1: Um, Jonathan, there's a, a central theme to this book, which you've you've touched on already in this interview, but I want to explore a little bit more, and that is deception. Now, there is um, clearly deception uh, perpetrated by the SS against... Uh, the victims on the even before they get on the trains they 're being sent and i didn 't know i 've read a lot of books about this subject i didn 't know about the postcards, so these are the postcards being sent to people back home uh, saying oh yes we 're resettled here in the east and and everything 's fine." And uh, and that was part of a deception to get people on the trains. And then the, the levels of deception within the camp to not make it clear what is going to happen to them the moment they um, come through those gates. I also, I, I'd like you to talk about that, but I also would like to ask you about a second level of deception. I wonder whether there was a level of deception from the SS themselves towards deceiving themselves about what they were doing, because we all know the the um, excuses given afterwards of I was only following orders, or if I'd raised my hand and said this should not happen, I would have been the next to be shot, uh, which it turns out was was not true. they would just have been um, sent off to some other well bluntly to to, to fight in a battle where the, the enemy had a gun as opposed to being an old lady or a, or a small child um But they they, they use those excuses all the same. And I wonder whether when they decided, you know, we're going to start uh, blowing up the crematoria and uh, and the the means of our genocide here, only because they could hear the Red Army coming round the corner, that was actually a level of deception themselves. They were deceiving themselves. But w- would you mind addressing both of those? So the, the 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 deception that the SS were carrying against the the the, the victims, but also the, the, whether you would agree that there was a level of deception they were per- perpetrating on themselves. It's
3: both such interesting questions. That second one, actually, especially I haven't uh, been asked that before, and I'm I'm thinking about it as 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 you as we're speaking. On the first point. Um, you know, we were talking before about writing it like a thriller. I mean, just that as one small example on the, of that. When Rudolf Weber was first in one of those cattle trucks, um, the, on his way to um, what he didn't know was going to be a concentration camp, people on the in the cattle truck were talking about letters they'd got and were and were say, were comparing notes on uh, on how oddly there were details that didn't make sense, where people would say, you know, mother sends her love and the woman getting the letter would know that their own their mother had died three years earlier. Why is my brother referring to our mother as if she's alive? Or there would be references to, you know, people in, in the village who everyone knew had been gone 10, 15 years. These discrepancies, that's the sort of detail you might put in a thriller because it turns out, of course, these were clues that people were deliberately smuggling into letters, knowing they were writing these letters at gunpoint, knowing they were about to die, and wanting to warn codedly the recipient, something is not right. And th- at the time, the recipients didn't really understand what was going on, including uh, Rudy himself. It's a detail that only makes sense much later on in the book, where you realise, okay, this is they were, they were sending a signal. So, you know, again, you d- I didn't have to work too hard to have almost these sort of quite thriller-esque plot details, you know, that you might have put in. The deception was meticulous from beginning to end. Um, The the language, you know, no one said, you're going to go to gas chambers. They would say you're going for special treatment. Um, You know, these euphemisms were used all the way through. Uh, the, 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 The extent of lying, the thoroughness of it, down to, and it went to the very last moment. So even in the seconds before their death, they were being deceived. Jews, I think people know this, this is quite famous, that in one of the gas chambers, it wasn't in all of them, but in one of them, Jews would be herded into a room believing they were going to have a shower. There were fake shower heads in the ceiling so that even in the final seconds, they thought water was going to come out. And of course, gas instead was filled, the room was filled with gas. Uh, the, the, The Germans understood something that it took, you know, Rudy himself understood, which is that if people have hope To the very last second, then they will comply. It's only if there is a complete absence of hope that they might start then panicking, stampeding. And Rudy didn't have any illusions. He didn't think the Jews were suddenly going to launch some armed revolt. These were children. They were the elderly. You know, a million children were killed in the Holocaust. We always have to remember that figure. These weren't people who could suddenly take up arms. All he wanted was for them to have that moment of panic and chaos, because he understood that the Nazi system required order, and if Jews suddenly started running in twenty-five different directions off the railway platform, that would they would all be shot dead in the end. But it would it would throw sand in the gears of the killing machine. So that's how central he understood, uh, and the, and he and the Nazis together they both understood how important that deception was. That's why the Nazis went to such lengths, even faking postcards. As to whether they were de- deceiving themselves, that's interesting. They were certainly engaged in the business of Holocaust denial while the Holocaust was actually happening. You know, we think of Holocaust denial as something that happens years later. They were in, they were in that business at the time, um, did not, you know, keeping it secret. Auschwitz was chosen partly because it was a remote location. Same with the other death camps of Belzec and Chelmno and Sobibor, far, you know, they're in faraway places where people won't uh, have immediate knowledge. Um, they are constantly hiding what they're doing. Again, documents that refer to, in euphemistic terms, to even the phrase itself, the final solution to the Jewish problem. We, it, it now is a chilling phrase. We know what it means at the time. Again, in some ways, euphemistic whether they were actually deceiving themselves to the the people act, doing the killing almost in a psychological way i'm not sure that it was that that the deception so much as the dehumanization there they knew what they were doing because they were seeing it every day um the 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 ones actually involved but two things first they managed to dehumanize their victims so the victims were never referred to really as people but units almost as if they were units of production in the factory um but second uh, I, I think was the ability to attempt to distance themselves from what they were doing and that is in some ways why the gas chambers themselves were devised because until then there had been the so-called holocaust of bullets meaning jews murdered in mass shootings and that continued by the way right through the period being shot into mass graves partly that was seen as just too stomach churning the a work a task for the you know ss men involved whereas gas chambers are allowed some distance and it is telling that the people who actually did the work of operating the uh, 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 gas chambers not administering the gas but Pulling the corpses out and so on, that was left to other Jewish prisoners. so that does suggest that they wa- they were they didn't want to face directly too closely the actual consequences of what they were doing, but those who were involved in it they were able to get through it because they didn't believe their victims were human beings any longer. They were Jews, and therefore they were something other than human. And therefore they could look at a Jewish child, aged five years old, playing with a ball or a doll, and without hesitation, herd them into a gas chamber to be murdered, and babies as well. You can only do that if you have decided those people are not people. And so I think you know, they were deceiving themselves in the, in, the, in, the, in the sense they had decided these people were no longer human and therefore what they were doing was not murdering their fellow human beings. An impossible question
2: to finish, uh, Jonathan, but it, uh, it seems worth asking, you. and maybe just in a couple of minutes, if you can, because you could probably fill hours on this.
3: What lessons should we draw from your book? Um I think the one that felt to me most pressing and that in some ways accounted for why I went back to this story that I'd known when I was a 19-year-old uh that I went back to all these years later was really something about truth. Um you know, as I was thinking about this we the word of the year was post-truth, fake news, people of Trump, etc. Rudolf Verber did everything and risked everything and 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 risked you know um a very painful death because he was determined to get the truth out from underneath a mountain of lies uh, because as we've been saying every stage of the process of the Nazi killing process involved lies and he understood in a way that I think is really relevant to our own time that the difference between truth and lies can be the difference between life and death um, that the it was because they were lied to that the jews went to their deaths um, without panicking and stampeding and causing chaos and that is re- and, and then we look at the response to the evidence and how people in some ways we talked about the prejudice and the practical problems but there was also an element of just sheer disbelief that people could not believe could not bring themselves to digest this terrible warning and, you know, the, the Holocaust is a unique and singular experience. I'm not making comparisons. But when you look at our world now with our warnings about the climate crisis and, you you know, you think of that film, Don't Look Up, I'd finished writing the book when Don't Look Up came out. But I saw that film and I could not help but think of Rudolf Verber because he he was coming to the world saying, banging the table saying, I have to warn you of something terrible. And people did anything to look the other way. They could not bear to hear what he was telling them. And I sort of think that maybe that isn't a Jewish thing, that isn't a Second World War thing. I think maybe that's a human thing, that we cannot absorb a warning that is too terrible to digest, and we find ways to not hear it. And that even happened with the handful of Jews who did get his warning. They sort of couldn't bear to take it in. It's very hard to contemplate your own imminent destruction and i i think that is a human impulse i understand it it may even be part of our sort of survival mechanism as a species but i think we have to overcome it and the best way to overcome it perhaps is to be conscious of it and this story the fate of the escape artist and and his report which he did so much to hand to the free world sort of thing um tells us uh why we have to overcome that uh, that that um human failing in a way it's a human weakness but he uh, his story i think draws attention to it and perhaps gives us the equipment to overcome it jonathan friedland's book is the
2: escape artist it's essential reading as i think you've just heard jonathan we appreciate your time thank you very much
3: thank you simon thank you matt